Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Welcome to the HPO podcast. Today I'm joined by Brady Homer for this episode. Brady is currently pursuing a PhD in applied physiology at the University of Florida. His current research focus is on the impact of exercise and lifestyle factors on cardiovascular health and function. He also hosts the podcast called Science and Chill. Details on his podcast can be found at bradyhomer.com. For this episode, we covered quite a bit around low-carb, keto, and fasting with a bit of a larger focus on fasting and different fasting methods. A few topics included were just basic definitions and the different setups for intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, some of the possible benefits for some over others, reasoning behind alternate day time-restricted feeding. We spoke a bit about Jeff Rothschild's study on fasted versus fed cardio and whether there was a performance benefit or deficit between the different types. Autophagy, energy output versus time spent fasting, exogenous ketones and fasting, and much more. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting the show. If you wish to support monetarily, you can find links to my Patreon page or PayPal on my website, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO, or in the links in the show notes. If you wish to support the show non-monetarily, liking, sharing, and subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube goes a very long way. All right, folks, let's welcome Brady and dive into this episode. Brady, thanks for taking some time and jumping on the show. Yeah, Zach, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to touch upon the topics you just mentioned. And, um, you know, it was fun to talk to you on my podcast a few weeks ago. So um, I'm excited to dig into some of the topics that we potentially didn't get to. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun to follow your podcast a bit. For the listeners who are curious, it's called Science and Chill. And uh, Brady J- dives into a variety of different topics over there. And it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I have your interview with Jerry uh, queued up for later today. So I'm excited to to take in all, what was it, two and a half hours of... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two and a half hours. We we covered the, the whole gamut of things. Jerry was, he's uh, he's quite the character and I was happy to have him on. You know, we I had a list of all these topics <laughs> beforehand and we covered maybe a third of them and it still took two and a half hours. So, um, but yeah, that, that one was fun. It was kind of a, a smorgasbord of, uh, you know, health, longevity, strength stuff. Um, it's a really, really interesting one. I like, I love talking to Jerry. Very cool. And and before we get serious with fasting, I have a very important question to bring up, and that is two-inch split shorts or no? Oh, for sure. For <laughs> sure. Two to three inches, that's the maximal length they should be. I actually ran in some that were a little longer than that yesterday, and I was, I was quite uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and to add some clarity to that preference for you, uh, you're in Florida, and the, the amount of humidity you get down there, it's almost a non-starter to go out with anything more than that. You need to keep yeah, it minimal. <laughs> for sure, for sure. What's your opinion on uh, half tights, Zach? What about running in half tights? I'm pro half tight, uh, half tights. I've got a funny story about that, though. When I was in college, uh, you know, we would meet in the gymnasium before you go for a run, and there'd be the mix between the freshmen to seniors. And, you know, obviously the freshmen were deferring to the seniors as to what to do and how to go about the structure of practice. And uh, when I was a first year, 
uh, one of my other first year uh, teammates came in and he had a pair of half tights on, but he had his split shorts over the half tights. Oh no. Yeah. That's the, a high school move right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The seniors immediately made him go back to the locker room and they said, you either take off those split shorts and go just half tights, or you take those half tights off and go just split shorts. You can't do both. <laughs> or no, for put sure. Them over. Yeah. You, you can maybe get away with putting the half tights over the split shorts if you don't care about the bunching underneath, but that's a different yeah. topic altogether. It's funny. I, I've done that a couple of times, the split short under the half tights. Uh, to, it prevents like chafing because mm-hmm. you have the liner from the split shorts. Sometimes half tights and humidity, they can, they can get some gnarly chafing. Uh, but yeah, I, the half, the shorts over the half tights, that's a, that's very taboo. So to those of you out there, if you're doing it, just go all in, in just the half tights and be confident or yeah, pull out the split shorts. Embrace the quad exposure. If you're going yeah. with the split shorts. The worst, so. I don't, I think the half tights, with the split shorts over is worse than even the long tights over the split shorts. Cause you know, if it's cold and you know, you're doing a race, you got to wear the team regulated shorts. So you can put them over a pair of full tights, but yeah, mm-hmm. the half tights and shorts, that's just a lack of commitment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's some environmental factors that can allow you to sidestep the rule, but you're, you're going to be in some pretty cold weather before people start letting you get away with that. So <laughs> for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Brady, if you don't mind, if you wanted to share with our listeners a little bit about you, kind of what you're up to, what you're doing down in Florida and some of kind of your interests and goals. Yeah, for sure. So a little bit about me. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in exercise science. I earned that from Northern Kentucky University, NKU. Um, Many people may not be familiar with that institution. It's it's located just south of Cincinnati, Ohio. um, In Northern Kentucky, as the name would suggest, Uh, I did my undergraduate uh, work there. And I also ran cross country and track and field for NKU where the Norse, um, I competed in track cross country and we were, we were division one, um, smaller sort of division one school, but still allowed us to kind of take part in some interesting kind of big time competition, which was fun. So, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed my collegiate career. I continue to run post-collegiately, nothing super competitive, but, you know, local, local halves, 10Ks, 5Ks, stuff like that. Um, but it was good experience running collegiately. And at NKU sort of is where I developed my, um, my love of research. And so I initially kind of began my degree, not really knowing where I wanted to go with it, what I wanted to do with it. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to do exercise science. I know you and I kind of talked a little bit about discovering kind of what we're interested in, but my love of running, my love of sort of nutrition and health always sort of led me in that direction. You know, I was like, oh, I wanted to do something related to performance, exercise, um, and sort of nutrition. I didn't really get into, you know, much research or um, studying on that during my undergrad degree, but um, exercise science was the major that I chose. And, you know, I fell in love with it, obviously, and just all the course content. And again, I didn't really know that this whole world of sort of scientific research existed. Now that might sound kind of funny because, you know, obviously it exists and now being so, um, so involved with it, it would seem obvious at the moment, at the point, you know, that that's something that I would have gotten interested in, but I, um, and neither of my parents went to college. So my mom actually went like one semester at NKU. My dad uh, didn't have a college degree. So I'm actually a first generation college student. And so, 
it's not necessarily that college wasn't expected, but, you know, we didn't really talk about it much. I didn't really, you know, I was in high school. I wasn't like, oh, you know, someday I want to do a PhD and go on to do a postdoc. Those options really just weren't, um, weren't something that I thought about. And so it wasn't really until my sophomore year at NKU where I really started to realize that this whole world of, you know, research and grants and, um, you know, laboratory research, basic and applied sort of existed. And that kind of occurred because a couple of my professors um, at the time, they started doing, they were doing research. NKU isn't a huge research institute, institution, but research does go on there. Um, you know, not kind of the RO1 type grants, such as where I'm at now, the University of Florida, but um, definitely kind of the smaller scale research studies. And so that's how I really got involved in research. I started a project with one of my professors. We were looking at the effects of energy drinks on cardiovascular measures like during exercise. And so I ended up getting tiny, a tiny sort of a summer research fellowship for that, that was able to like pay a stipend, you know, so I didn't have to work at, you know, like Smoothie King or something like that, which was, <laughs> which was nice. So I could just train and sort of do that research. Um, and that is sort of where I got, you know, one, the knowledge of how to do research to kind of, oh, this is actually an option that exists with a degree such as this, if you want to pursue it further. Um, and then just also fell in love with doing research and, and the interesting findings and things that you can, that you can um, uncover from doing research. And so that initial sort of getting my feet wet in research extended to the next summer during my senior year, I started doing a little study on diabetes, um, which served as my capstone project. So at NKU, uh, I was in the honors program. You do a little capstone project, similar to like a thesis, but definitely a little more, you know, low key in terms of the content that you have to output. You don't have to write a, you know, 90 to hundred page thesis. Um, so I conducted that study. And after that, clearly it was going into my senior year. I had to think about options of, you know, what I wanted to do next with, with my career. And to be honest, you know, there are, there are plenty of things that you can do with a bachelor's degree in exercise science, but generally your options are pretty limited. And so you can kind of do, I did my internship at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in the exercise testing lab. So there we basically did, we conducted uh, stress tests in people with either congenital heart conditions or possibly athletes who suffered some sort of cardiac event or some sort of just abnormal um, event that occurred during say a cross country race or a basketball game. If I wanted to have a career in exercise science, this is something I could do with the degree that I was, you know, currently or going to get the bachelor's degree. Um, other than that, you know, you can work as a athletic trainer, you could potentially do some research administrator type stuff. But I think I realized that I wanted to eventually pursue um, a PhD and take this further, um, expand my knowledge and sort of just learn what all this scientific, this world of scientific research was about. And so at the end of my senior year or during my senior year, I just sent out a bunch of emails to like all these different universities, all these different labs. Cause again, I didn't really, I wasn't aware of sort of the big names in research. Um, I wasn't really even set upon an area that I wanted to go into. It wasn't like, Oh, I'm, I'm really interested in say skeletal muscle biology, or I'm really interested in fasting. I really wasn't at the time. So, um, or, you know, I really am interested in say, just sports performance or hypertrophy or cardiovascular physiology. It was like, I'm just going to send my email or my name out to all of these labs, see if they have an opening and we'll kind of go from there. And so that eventually just led to um, me getting an email from my current advisor at the University of Florida, 
alerting me that, hey, you know, I have a PhD student leaving and there's also this opportunity uh, to apply for this fellowship. And the deadline is in two weeks, but I think if we work on it, we can get something done, put together sort of a training packet for you, send it in, and then, you know, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. And so it was very serendipitous, but, you know, looking back at it now, it's, I think I'm in a great place, but I ended up getting that fellowship. It was a four-year fellowship at UF. Um, I've been here for more than four years now, so it extended a little bit beyond that. Um, so I landed at the University of Florida working in the Integrative Cardiovascular Physiology Lab. Um, that's where I'm currently working now. And that's sort of the background. And then in terms of what I'm doing now, you know, our lab is very interested in studying endothelial function. So we're interested in all aspects of cardiovascular health, including um, blood pressure, arterial stiffness, and, but in particular, endothelial function or blood vessel function, kind of to put it in more lay terms, is something that our lab is very interested in. And then in particular, we look at the effects of acute and chronic exercise on endothelial function across all sort of demographics. So we look at the effects of aging on endothelial function and how exercise can modify that. We've recently done some studies on sex differences in endothelial function and that response to exercise. Um, and then I have also transitioned more recently, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but um, not necessarily going away from exercise, but I became very interested in the concept of sleep or the topic of sleep and how that relates to cardiovascular health. That was just um, a result of a small pilot study that we actually did a few years ago where we found some interesting data and that led me to sort of be interested in how sleep regulates cardiovascular function and then how a lack of sleep in particular can exert detrimental effects on cardiovascular function and health. And so the studies that I'm currently working on and pursuing my um, degree in, getting my doing my dissertation work in are involving sleep endothelial function. And then we have also this exercise component in there. So that's, you know, my background and currently, currently what I'm working on. But as you suggested at the beginning, um, in addition to my research, I'm also interested in sort of just these various topics, including endurance running, as you and I talked about in, in our episode, um, fasting, ketogenic diets, exogenous ketones. It's kind of all things that I'm interested in just from a a personal performance standpoint, you know, I'm still involved in running and cycling and things like that. So I'm interested in improving my own uh, performance, but, you know, I've been doing a lot of freelance writing on the side and, you know, talking with people like you and others on my podcast, just looking at ways that I can improve my own health, how help other people improve their health and sort of just, you know, learn about uh, as much about human performance and physiology as possible, just because having, uh, you know, just an underlying interest in all of this stuff. And so I don't, while I love the research that I'm, I'm doing in the lab, there's all these other topics that I want to pursue that I kind of do on a, uh, maybe a less in-depth level. Yeah. It, it makes perfect sense that that's kind of where your focus has kind of headed. When I think of just, uh, like just training and performance as well as just lifestyle well-being. I think of like three major levers and that's just whatever exercise stimulus or movement stimulus you're participating in your sleep and your nutrition. And when you can dial in those three things, whether that be by following a standard protocol or something that you found that is showing benefits uh, individually, those are the kind of the things you want to take care of first. And then any of the smaller levels that you can start to pull after those things being kind of accounted for, are going to move the needle a little less. And oftentimes they're moving the needle because they positively impact one of those other three anyhow. <laughs> so you yeah. end up kind of getting into the weeds a little bit after, after those three, if, 
I mean, you can get in the weeds with those three very easily as well. But if you want to kind of go a little further. Yeah. And I almost think that, you know, I'm, I'm clearly interested in like helping people improve their health by moving those major levers that you mentioned. It's like, okay, do you take care of sleep, exercise and diet? I think recently I've almost become more interested in optimizing those tinier levers that you were talking about in terms of, okay, I'm necessarily, you know, I have, I'm interested in, you know, taking maybe less healthy people and getting them to be healthy. But I think what's more interesting right now, at least to me is taking healthy people or people who are at their peak performance, you know, fitting with this uh, human performance outliers podcast, (laughs) but um, taking people who are kind of already at their peak performance and saying like, Oh, what dials can we turn to really like get into the intricacies of like performance. And so there you just have so many more options that open up. So, you know, you can take diet, you can start talking about macronutrient intakes, micronutrient intakes, like all this different stuff. You can start talking about, you know, once you have diet covered, okay, well, what's the next lever below or maybe above that? Oh, well, let's talk about meal timing. So let's not talk about how much you eat or what you're eating, but like at what time are you eating? So you're going to do time-restricted feeding. Are you going to shift your window to earlier or to later? And like, what do the data say about that? And then exercise too. And uh, here is kind of where like the circadian stuff interests me. And again, I'll kind of get, you know, into not arguments, but sort of um, discussions with people on Twitter. If I'll post like an article that I write about, oh, so there's a study that shows say, exercising in the evening can actually help you enhance your adaptations. Or if you exercise in the morning, these particular adaptations are enhanced and people are like, Oh, just exercise. Who cares when it happens? (laughs) Well, yeah, sure. First of all, if you're, if you're not exercising, just exercise whenever the hell you can exercise. But if you already are and you have the freedom to say you can exercise in the morning fasted or in the afternoon when you're fed or play around with these different timings, those, you know, to optimize, maybe that benefits are kind of minuscule, but you know, whatever, if you can, you know, why wouldn't you do it if you can optimize some sort of adaptation? So that really interests me. And I've, you know, written several kind of articles on that, like, here's the best time to exercise for this or whatever. Um, And then, yeah, so just in terms of like diet and exercise, looking at the intricacies has sort of been something that I've become very interested in, as well as all the other sort of kind of biohacking things that are out there, but you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's so many to list. <laughs> it's impossible yeah. to, to it, totally cover. And it makes perfect sense too. I mean, I think of it from just like a, a basic educational standpoint where like, if I'm working with a student who's ready for trigonometry, we're probably not going to go back and and address basic uh, addition and subtraction. We're going to start with trigonometry. So it really does come down to well, where's this person at in their development and their routine. And if they're already, sleeping great, training consistently, following a structured uh, nutrition plan that's working well for them. It's like, why would we go back and readdress those things if there's not any sign of them being a deficit? And then we can start working on some of those maybe arguably more fun little levers to pull that sometimes catch people's eyes quite easily. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and the circles that you and I kind of um, run in they're people who mostly have things kind of together. You know, again, we, we interact with people who are just looking for simple advice, like, Oh, how can I train for a 5k and complete it in this time successfully? But then there are others mostly, you know, who are looking to, Oh, what can I do to now possibly optimize whatever I'm doing to, to kind of the, the biggest level. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And what, one other kind of follow up with, with your description too is my listeners won't bat an eye at it but uh folks who think i think still in like mainstream endurance exercise 
they hear interest in ketogenic, low carbohydrate fasting and their mind automatically goes to, why would I do that? That goes against everything I know about endurance and I need to be, you know, taking in high amounts or at least moderate amounts of carbohydrate. And what, what got you kind of interested in low carbohydrate ketogenic types of diets? Was it unique to endurance anyway, or is it something separate? And then uh, I'm piling them on here, but do you partake in a lower carbohydrate diet yourself? Yeah. So I think I'll kind of start with the, with the second one, because that's sort of maybe what got me interested in this. So, you know, I'll spare kind of all the major details, but a couple of years ago, I, um, I, I was actually involved in a car accident and I wasn't in a car. I was actually on a run and the car was, you know, I was the object of the car's uh, <laughs> wrath on that day. And so the car ended up running over my foot. I broke a couple bones in my foot. And so that sort of sidelined me for, you know, a couple months. And that was like the longest I had ever, ever not run, not exercise. I mean, I was literally like doing nothing because my foot was, foot was broken. Um, so really that sort of started off this unfortunate kind of string of injuries and coming back and then going back into injury, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, at that time I sort of started getting more interested in, diet, not only as maybe a a distraction from not running and just sort of like something new to learn about, but also just as a way to, okay, well, you know, it makes sense that if I'm not exercising at all, or as much as I once did, you know, maybe let's try tweaking things with my diet to see if that either has, you know, I wasn't trying to necessarily like lose any weight, but it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to be running for a while. What are there sort of dietary interventions that I might be able to implement in my own life to maintain you know, muscle mass, metabolic health, and sort of just this phenotype of running that I have always, you know, just had. And so I kind of got interested in just looking at the evidence on low carb diets. I started really getting into these um, personalities on Twitter, I guess you would call them, um, and YouTube, just going down rabbit holes and videos of people speaking at, you know, low carb low carb conferences, reading papers on low carb diets, um, because it's not really something even before then I had ever considered for my own performance, you know, I had always typically eaten a very healthy diet as a runner and maybe kind of skewing towards the low carb side because I would sort of try to optimize protein intake. Um, But I I wouldn't necessarily say I was ever low carb, you know, throughout college and post-collegiately, it was probably eating, you know, maybe 50 to 60% um, carbohydrates. I went through a period where I was doing a vegan diet for like a year. I was probably higher carbohydrate then um, just because that's sort of how it works out. But, um, so this was a totally new sort of sort of a route into exploring diet that I had never really considered. And I found it to be, you know, not only just enjoyable, but also interesting, you know, just trying something new, obviously this novel stimulus, this novel um, diet that I was going to eat. So trying that out in terms of, I don't really have this running thing to focus on now, but I'm going to see, you know, get myself more interested and more knowledgeable about diet. So that's sort of where all of that began, my interest in that. Um, And then regarding just performance, that sort of has just carried over. So now I'm, you know, kind of back to running, not as much, but just exercising at my normal levels. And so that, you know, what I learned and experienced during that time has sort of carried over into me being interested in one, continuing to implement this lifestyle for myself, but then two, also doing the research and seeing how endurance exercise can benefit uh, from, say, low-carb diets. Um, I wouldn't say... 
I'm necessarily like ketogenic. Some days I'm more low carb than others. Um, but in terms of what maybe might be defined as a traditional low carb diet, I'm probably generally low carb. I don't uh, necessarily do any, any tracking of percentages, but I'd say on any given day, I'm maybe 20 to 30% ish. So, um, many people won't think that's probably low carb, but with the amount of exercise that I'm typically doing it, it probably would be maybe considered mm-hmm. that. So, and then regarding performance, so that's kind of my personal, um, background with that, but regarding performance, I think that the reason that, um, or I guess looking at sort of the data has become something very interesting because the, as you know, this is a topic of constant, just debate that will probably never be resolved. And honestly, one that I'm not even sure can be resolved because it's so context specific, you know, like Mm -hmm. we talk about, Oh, do our low carb diets better for exercise? Well, like for one, what does better mean? And there are so many different types of exercise. So clearly you and others like you are showing that you can have success. I would say, you know, extreme success in ultra endurance sports on low carbohydrate slash ketogenic diets. And the physiology behind that makes sense. You know, it has been studied. Um, Jeff Folick, Stephen Finney, they've done plenty of research publishing studies on kind of you and other ultra runners, um, but making a case that low carb diets can be useful for if we're, you know, kind of submaximal endurance exercise. I don't really think that there's an argument to be made there. I think that the debate or people may say, oh, why would I transition to that? That's kind of where we can get into more interesting talks because sure, low or a, you know, a moderate to high carbohydrate diet will typically work for most athletes and does work for most athletes. So I, I think that it's interesting to look at, just look what a majority of kind of high performing athletes in the world do. They're probably eating a moderate to even, you know, high-ish carbohydrate diet intake. I mean, I'm sure if you looked at um, runners such as Kipchoge, you know, he's in the marathon, but even Olympic 5k, 10k runners, whoever they are, um, they're probably eating a diet that is generally high in carbohydrates. They're, they're supplementing with carbohydrates during exercise. Um, and that is obvious because what we know about, you know, metabolism and exercise metabolism, if you're doing that sort of high intensity exercise, I mean, during even a marathon, somebody like Kipchoge, you know, they're running at 85 ish, 80, 85, 90, maybe even percent of their maximal oxygen consumption. Um, so that, you know, carbohydrates are, are necessary there. And, you know, whether someday somebody will do something like that on a low carb diet, you know, break like two hours in the marathon, who knows, but right now sort of the consensus and the traditional practices of endurance athletes is to consume, you know, a high, high carb diet and it works. And so I think that's one of the contexts that needs to be separated then from most of the people in this area or a lot, maybe at least, you know, the people that we interact with are thinking about maybe the metabolic effects. So I think one of the sort of criticisms is like, oh yeah, we're eating high carbohydrate diets. They may be better for performance, but is it better from a health span or a longevity standpoint? You know, basically kind of the Tim Noakes argument, like, is everybody just going to have diabetes later on because Mm -hmm. they were chugging gels during their marathons and stuff like that. And like, sure, I, your average Joe or average Jane doesn't need to be probably taking in goose during their local 5k or carrying like a Gatorade bottle out on their five mile run. You know, that's, that's not necessarily um, probably ideal, you know, and I think that can maybe lead to some, to some negative metabolic effects. But I think that um, one of the, the main criticisms in terms of where the research is at right now 
can kind of come from people such as Louise Burke um, in her group. They do a lot of studies on low carb diets in particular in like race walkers. They must have access to this group of like race walkers out there because all their studies are sort of in these, these high performing um, Olympic elite pro, pro professional level um, race walkers. And so they're, I wouldn't say they're critics maybe of low carb diets. They, they sort of are, all their papers seem to uh, have outcomes related to negative effects on performance, but I think they're almost just trying to, you know, this isn't necessarily the goal when you're a scientist and maybe it's not their goal, but sort of, you know, show that carbohydrates are kind of the optimal, you know, fuel for high intensity performance. And, you know, like many of their studies show negative effects on performance, but again, we're there, we're, you know, separating because we're really talking about high intensity performance, like race pace type of stuff. And so there, again, I think the consensus can just go back to if it's really high intensity, just based on basic sort of physiological concepts as exercise intensity increases, the proportion of energy being produced from carbohydrates increases proportion of energy produced, you know, by breaking down fatty acids decreases not to say that fat burning lowers it's either the same or maybe even higher obviously as you increase the intensity but the overall proportion of carbohydrate contributing to your energy production is is going to be increased as the intensity increases now that can be modified by eating a lower carbohydrate diet as shown in volick and finney studies and you know with you just showing that if you adapt to a low carbohydrate diet you might be able to burn more fat at this higher exercise intensity. So whereas before maybe 60% was sort of where your fat max was your, you know, the intensity where you're burning sort of the maximal proportion of fatty acids um, that may be shifting to 65, 70, 75%. And so I think there, you know, there's definitely considerable evidence that they can be beneficial, but that again, goes back to when we say these diets are, beneficial. Well, what are they beneficial for? So I think if we just say to kind of maybe sum up, yes, they're probably beneficial for extended kind of submaximal performance. Beneficial, if not neutral, I guess, is sort of the best uh, best kind of way to put it. And I wouldn't say that they're detrimental, but in some cases they're either going to help or they're not going to not going to hinder it. Um, I know there's a double negative there, but, <laughs> and then in regards to high intensity performance, I think that a majority of the data would show if we're th- talking about something like race pace, time trial performance, peak power output, whatever, um, performance generally, again, is either not negatively affected or it's decreased. Um, I have yet to kind of come upon a study where they're either performing a, a time trial or something that's of, you know, competition type intensities that is improved if you have these runners, cyclists, whoever they may be put on a low carbohydrate diet. Um, and then finally, I think something to touch upon though is the metabolic effects. So I said before, kind of increasing your, your fat burning capacity or your metabolic flexibility. Um, I think that there's a case to be made for that in terms of endurance performance and things, events like you're taking part in, um, things like Ironman marathon, et cetera. Cause if you do increase your ability to, to burn fat, if you keto slash fat adapt, you're burning fat at a higher intensity, there's, potentially, and I say potentially because I don't think the data are sort of there uh, out yet, but potentially an effect on glycogen sparing, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, it makes sense if you're, if you're burning more fat, you know, that's at the expense of glycogen that may be stored for when you got to put in that finishing kick or something like that. Um, And, you know, that really only applies to exercise where glycogen 
depletion would be a limiting factor. I know you and I sort of bantered about this on um, when we chatted on my podcast, but you know, the point at which kind of glycogen depletion starts to impair performance seems to be at around maybe like 40% or something like that. I was only able to uncover <laughs> a couple studies uh, there, but obviously it never totally runs to zero, but it seems like once it dips below maybe 40% or is 40% depleted, um, you kind of start to have these negative effects on performance, whether that sort of be central mechanisms, neurological mechanisms, or these peripheral me mechanisms actually related to, um, you know, the inability to produce energy at the rate at which the body is sort of needing it and or demanding it. Um, there was actually something interesting when I when I started looking at those papers after our, our podcast, but they were they were talking about how. I think the reduced glycogen, again, it wasn't necessarily causing fatigue related to the inability to produce ATP, but it was something with like calcium handling and more neurological mechanisms. Like the brain was just sensing, oh, we're, we're real low on glycogen. Like we need to sort of, it's almost like the central governor model of, you know, that Noakes is proposing in terms of fatigue. Like the brain is sensing low glycogen availability. It's kind of kind of pull the brake on your ability to, to produce work and, you know, run faster, um, longer. So, um, I kind of got on a tangent and forgot where I was, but just in general, you know, the metabolic effects. And so talking about the increased fat burning, and then I guess a final thing to consider that I think is relevant in terms of low carb diets is body composition. So all athletes, especially those in weight sensitive sports, you know, thinking about cycling and running, maybe we'll just focus on those in particular, you know, if, if athletes are trying to improve their body composition, there definitely are data that show adopting a low carb diet can help improve body composition. And by that we mean, you know, reducing body fat percent and either in most cases, not increasing, but maintaining lean muscle mass. So, you know, dropping body percent, if you're a cyclist, you can increase your power to weight ratio, assuming you, you know, maintain your performance, but decrease your body weight and your body fat. So that would have a beneficial effect on performance for runners. Clearly, you know, at some point, it may start to exert detrimental effects, but if you're at a point where you have body fat, body mass to lose, that could also lead to increased performance. And so there, there's some significant data um, that low carb diets do improve body composition and for the most part are able to maintain performance outcomes and um, muscle mass. And so I think there, used strategically, say in a season where you're not necessarily racing and maybe you want to drop a few percent body fat or something like that, or improve body composition, they may be able to be used strategically there. So, you know, to sum up, it's just, it's, it's so context specific when we think about low carb diets. And I think that it's impossible to say if you're doing endurance, you should, or you shouldn't do a low carb diet. I think it's more accurate to say, you could use one maybe at this point in your training, or you could do a cyclical low carb ketogenic approach, or you could do sort of this periodized carbohydrate approach. Um, I don't think that there's, I, I think there's room for, we need room for nuance here in terms of speaking about it rather than these should be adopted, you know, as a blanket statement, or, you know, these should be totally just kick to the curb as a blanket statement too. I don't think either of those conclusions should be sort of made when having this conversation. Hey folks, my friends at Egg Weights are supporting this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you're not familiar with them, Egg Weights makes a variety of ergonomic exercise equipment. They have options for boxing and martial arts training, full body workouts with their torque force and torque board, 
a massage toolkit, and my personal favorite, their running pods. Egg weights were tested in the University of Southern California Exercise Science Clinical Research Lab and have been proven to do things like activate your core during running, intensify your arm drive, correct poor running form, and more. I love to take my running pods out in the afternoon for easy paced runs where I can focus and work on proper form and mechanics. Having a small ergonomic weight in my hand helps correct my arms from swinging out or too far forward. It also prevents my core from relaxing too much through my gait cycle. The running pods come in a variety of weights and colors. They also just recently launched their youth pods, which will be a great tool for kids, youth sports, and coaches to help develop proper form and mechanics from an early age. Head over to eggweights.com, that's E-G-G-W-E-I-G-H-T-S.com, and click on the running tab to check them out. If you decide they are a tool for you, plug in promo code ZACH15, that's Z-A-C-H-1-5, for an extra 15% off your order. These links and the promo code can be found in the show notes. Yeah, that makes makes perfect sense. And it squares with everything that I've kind of seen and, and learned within this topic as well. And, you know, the way I try to kind of simply put it for folks who are interested, especially if they kind of got <clears throat> sucked into a Twitter banter <laughs> type of situation where it became all or nothing, which they, they seemingly always end up becoming at some point in time, is like, you know, you can reference guys like uh, Kipchoge, and how I, I, would I would pretty much guarantee you if we put him on a low carbohydrate diet that his performance would drop. And one of the reasons for that is you take a person who has optimized his entire life to run fast marathons to the point where like it's probably down to ounces in terms of like what he can and cannot afford to lose and gain from body fat standpoint. And it's so for him, it's like if he takes that hit from the oxygen uh, demand from a marathon or faster, then there's no way to make that up through other variables. Whereas you take the average person who likely has a multiple variables to clean up or fix or, you know, maybe their lifestyle and their preferences put them in a position where, uh, like you said, following a low carbohydrate diet allows them to get to their leanest state, their highest power to weight ratio and maintain it, then, you know, they may make up for any relative deficit that they would get from taking that hit from the performance side. And where I see these type of to topics and conversations going awry is where you get someone who's either very like kind of myopically focused on one of those variables or is just a very good debater and knows that. So they intentionally drive the conversation towards one or two variables versus trying to look at it a whole picture and introduce the context of say, you know, how many Elu Kipchogis are we coaching? How many, <laughs> yeah, well, there's one, right? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's one coach that coaches Elu. And uh, yeah, so it, you, you summed it up perfectly in my opinion. And then, and then you're right. I think a lot of people as well, I mean, the majority of the people I work with, they're not doing ultra marathons because they want to win a race. They're doing ultra marathons because they enjoy the sport and the more value they get out of it in their whole life is much more important to them than, you know, you know, finishing say, you know, 53rd instead of 56th or something like that. They want to feel good doing it. They want to continually make progress. They want to explore their limitations 
and still maintain everything else that goes on with, with, you know, life of someone who's not a professional athlete. So you're right. I mean, so much gets lost uh, without the context and it makes the, I think, uh, uh, just a much more uh, interesting field of exploration when you include those variables and all those other types of situations that kind of come with it. But yeah, and I think that's that's why it's become so hard to debate this kind of stuff on Twitter because you know anecdotes are very and I say Twitter because that's mostly like where the debates right. occur. Just kind of you know between it's funny because on Twitter you can get not just debates scientist to scientist, but you get debates you know just non scientist to non scientist or scientist to non scientist. So it's like all these different uh, you know different points of views and expertise coming together. And so that's kind of where you get a lot of conflicting information because anecdotes are super powerful. And I think, like you mentioned before, you know, there, I can't argue and I won't argue, I wouldn't want to argue with somebody who's like, oh, I adopted this low carb diet and you know, now I'm running a 5K and say like 26, 27 minutes, whereas before I was at like 38. Of course, like the problem is there, like you mentioned with that individual, this dietary variable was so powerful that it pulled them from that 35 minute 5k down to this 27 minute 5k. Now they had a lot of room to improve. And so there are other variables that they aren't optimizing. Like you said, like Kipchoge, you know, they aren't tugging the lever of gear or, you know, optimizing body composition. And so for them to say, Oh, low carb is the reason for my success. Well, it was, it was a contributor. Sure. But who's to say that if you didn't clean up your diet while still eating moderate carb, you still may have dropped your 5k time. And I think that would be the case in many, many cases, but we don't have an RCT on that individual doing multiple, you know, crossover arms in their own life where they, they ate high carbohydrate diet and they ate moderate carb, they ate low carb and did sort of the same protocol. And, oh, how does that affect your performance? But nevertheless, I just think it's, you know, if, if somebody improves, their performance on a low carb diet. I'm not one to say that, oh, it was just because of this, you know, I'm sure the low carb diet contributed to that and whatever mechanism it was that contributed to that is powerful and it's important and should be, should be validated. Um, so, you know, and I think like you mentioned with, with somebody like Kipchoge, if you're going to, you know, even the suggestion, I think of to his coaches or him of eating like a low carb diet would probably be scoffed at just <laughs> knowing, you know, what they know and everything. But yeah. So I just think, again, there's, you know, we need, we need room for nuance. Um, and, you know, if one, if one, something shows to be beneficial for a person, I don't think that we should, you know, try to come up with excuses. I think that we should, we should validate that. Um, but you don't see a lot of nuance on Twitter, like you mentioned before. <laughs> Awesome. And one other follow up before we hop into some of the fasting stuff is uh, I'm really interested in moving away from the intensity that we would use in say like Olympic distance endurance events, and then even extreme endurance events, and move even further away from that into like the sprinting uh, hit or power type sports. Because one thing I find interesting there is the folks I know who are like, ketogenic or very low to even zero carb intake that participate in those type of activities. Uh, I'm maybe a little less willing to make the same argument as I would with low carbohydrate for endurance and that, you know, yeah, but this variable just uh, overweighed that one. And that's why you saw an advantage because my thought is like, if you're doing something that short and that intense and your workouts are specified towards it, the workload for any 
one session is so great and in such a short time frame, you really just don't have the opportunity to meaningfully dip into your muscle glycogen. And then you may have, say, like a 23-hour window, 24-hour window before your next training session. So you almost have this like increased time frame and this limited duration factor. Does those variables contribute to, say, someone being able to kind of abstain from carbohydrate and still perform at a super high level on some of these more kind of like sprint, uh, anaerobic, or like power type sports? Yeah, that's interesting. And it's honestly a, a topic or an area that I really haven't given much thought to potentially just because of my bias towards sort of endurance sports, but it's, it is so interesting because like you mentioned, you know, and it makes sense from the standpoint that like, well, what do you need again? Like, what do you need to dip into your glycogen stores for the, the stuff that you're doing, the types of, you know, say you're doing like sprints or maximal lifts, you're getting full recovery of say your, your ATP your phosphocreatine systems in between whatever sprints that you're doing during a training session. And even just a minimal like carbohydrate intake, probably sipping a Gatorade or whatever is going to just allow you to maintain glycogen, even if you're touching your glycogen stores during that type of exercise. So it would make sense that, oh, an athlete in those realms could eat a low carbohydrate diet and be fine. And I think there maybe body composition might become sort of the most, most important thing. It's like, oh, somebody like Usain Bolt can optimize that power to weight ratio or somebody in, uh, you know, Olympic weightlifting or something like that optimizing that power to weight ratio is probably one of the key aspects. You know, obviously there are many other aspects influencing performance, but if that were the case, you would say, Oh, a low carb diet may be able to help them refine their body composition. Um, but I don't think you really see many athletes in those areas. And maybe, maybe I'm just not aware, but many athletes experimenting or even talking about low carb diet or diet in general, you know, it's kind of funny, like, if you just thinking back to like even high school and college, it's like the, the sprinters never think about what they're eating. They, <laughs> they, you know, they're snacking on a hot dog and like yeah. some sweet tarts before their race. And I'm like, Oh my God, if I ate that, I would be puking in the second lap of the 3,200. But, and not to say that they don't care about what they're eating. And once you get to the Olympic and collegiate levels they're you know, people are really, really thinking about optimizing diet, but less so, you know, I mean, Usain Bolt's going to eat, you know, 50 chicken nuggets before yeah. his hundred meter final in uh, Beijing and he's going to be, he's going to win it in a landslide. So um, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's weird that it's not an area and maybe I'm just not up to date on the literature, but um, where the effects of say low carb diets are being investigated, say on peak, you know, sprint power, sprint speed or weightlifting, uh, you know, uh, capability in, in Olympic lifters or something like that. Yeah, that is interesting because it seems like that that carries forward from the high school sprinters into the professionals, like you say, Bolt. I remember reading an mm -hmm. article when he was in his prime and they were just talking about his his kind of day to day. And they said like he would wake up and uh, he would uh, I think he did like a workout Then he would eat some sweet potatoes and chicken nuggets. He'd take a nap, wake up, eat more sweet potato and chicken nuggets and do another workout. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I don't think, know if that was know. tied to a McDonald's sponsorship or not, but yeah, maybe. <laughs> I just know he said in Beijing, he ate something like a thousand chicken nuggets, I think throughout the, it said his diet was just chicken nuggets during the whole Beijing, uh, Beijing Olympics. Cause that was kind of what he was, it was something he was comfortable eating. And, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I guess when you think about it, it's just, you know, fried chicken bites, pretty easy on the stomach. So, yeah. you know, you don't want to dip into any, any weird food and risk food poisoning or something. So yeah. maybe he, he was onto something there, but uh, it's just, it's just funny the different ways that 
athletes in different disciplines think about think about what they're eating or don't think about it <laughs> for sure and one thing that got me kind of interested in those like kind of extreme power output type sports was uh kind of twofold one was just some of that more the earlier research on ketogenic diets the the cohort or the sport that seemed to have the most promise was gymnastics which is kind of like within that range where power weight is incredibly important mm -hmm. leanness is incredibly important uh, very much explosive than rest. I mean, they're probably skewing a little more towards endurance than say the sprinters are just because you get flow routine type stuff and longer duration things. But uh, that was interesting. And then my own just like self-experimentation, what I noticed is if I took enough time off between short interval sessions, I could stay strict keto and nail those short intervals. It was when I started compounding that where I was having mm -hmm. close proximity of two intense sessions or high volume in the context of a couple of fast sessions in a week where I noticed I was having a harder time kind of staying on top of what I suspect is like liver and muscle glycogen. Um, I describe it as kind of like if you give yourself enough time and you don't replace uh, the glycogen stores at the rate you're, you're dipping into them, you kind of have like a descending staircase and it might take you till Thursday to get to the bottom of that staircase, but you're going to get there and then you're going to be hit with a ton of bricks. And yeah. And it almost takes you a longer time to climb out of that sort of like the kind of the overtraining syndrome, you know, where it's like, once you get there, it's not like, oh, you can immediately just like take a day off and get right back up. It may take a little longer to, to sort of get back to your baseline. But I, th mm -hmm. I think what you said uh, just before was key in terms of if you allow enough time between training sessions, I mean, most people. And so again, going back to like, you know, can low carb diet support, you know, high training output, most people are training once a day. You know, most people aren't training twice a day. So if you train every single morning, if you allow 24 hours in between training sessions, your glycogen has enough time, regardless of the diet that you're eating to completely replenish itself. You know, gluconeogenesis is going to occur. Um, so regardless of what you're eating, whether it's low carb, keto, um, I think, you know, I've seen some evidence that your glycogen stores are mostly replenished if you, you know, take a day off in between all training sessions and me the day off, meaning just like you're not exercising in the evening as well. So you're exercising every single morning. That's sufficient time to sort of replenish those glycogen stores. So, you know, if you're not doing, if you're doing an afternoon workout, there may be a case, especially if that workout's high intensity um, of supplementing with some carbs, unless you want to get the metabolic adaptations um, and you use a strategic sort of restricting carbohydrates before that afternoon session to get some of the unique metabolic adaptations. But it's just all about what you're trying to optimize for. I mean, if you really want to hit your times and your splits on that afternoon training session, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe have some carbs for lunch. But if it's like, you know, for me and for many athletes, kind of, I know you're going to do your real hard training session in the morning. Um, your evening session might just be like a little shakeout run. So you might be okay. Just sort of restricting carbohydrates before that hit those adaptations and then sort of replenish afterwards, you know, just go, go ham at dinner, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. So let's jump into fasting, intermittent fasting and that sort of stuff. Uh, I want to plug an interview you did on science and chill. Uh, it was a fasting interview with Dr. Stephen Anton. So in, in an effort to perhaps not necessarily replicate <laughs> that, uh, I would encourage listeners to head over and check that one out. Uh, I think you, you guys did a great job of kind of covering your bases in terms of introducing the topic so that people understood like what is intermittent fasting? How does it differ from say like long, long fasting and all these different kind of nuances within just that, that fasting type category. So perhaps we don't waste a whole lot of time laying out all the definitions. 
Um, and then you guys obviously got into some really more like in-depth stuff on there too. So it just kind of trended perfectly for that episode in my experience. But I, I want to kind of work off that a little bit and introduce maybe some more specific things to endurance sport and sport along the way too, and maybe add a little bit of flavor to it as well as address some, some new stuff that I don't think you guys necessarily touched on. Um, but uh, just as kind of a little bit of a primer, um, do you want to share just like a basic definition of kind of intermittent fasting and how you kind of see that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And again, for people who want to check out that episode, Dr. Anton, um, he's actually here at the University of Florida. So it was kind of cool, cool to have him on, but he does some real cool work on intermittent fasting. Um, that was episode 29. So if people want to check that out, we go over all kind of the, the basic definitions and things like that. So I'll try to do my best to remember what he said since he's the expert there. But um, just in general, I guess, and you know, there are so many definitions that it's, it gets so, um, you know, convoluted sometimes, but I think intermittent fasting, many people would agree, intermittent fasting is basically any period sort of extended more than the sleep period where you are, you know, abstaining from calorie containing beverages and or food. Now, again, this is where you can get super nuanced. It's like, oh, well, what breaks a fast? And I almost, I think I asked him maybe kind of questions about that. People say, oh, does coffee, does creamer? That just depends on like the benefits that you want. You know, are you trying to completely just abstain from any sort of energy containing things? Or are you just trying to say, quote unquote, fat fast or whatever? Um, but intermittent fasting, just as a definition, going an extended period of time without food and traditionally intermittent fasting or IF, if you see it in sort of research or people talking about it, it typically is 24 hours or more. And that's kind of the idea, the way that I sort of see it. So you're either doing say a five, two fast, which would be like five days where you just eat ad libitum, like whatever you want, whenever you want. And then two days where you completely abstain from eating anything, um, or maybe just really, really restrict. So eat say 500 calories, 500 to 700 calories a day. Um, or you sort of do some sort of alternate day fasting. And again, all of these like fall under the umbrella of intermittent fasting. So it's kind of, it's kind of weird um, alternate day fasting where you eat one day, don't eat the next and sort of repeat that. Um, and then you have the time restricted feeding, which I would separate from intermittent fasting because time restricted feeding is almost something you do every day. Intermittent fasting could almost just be, I guess, going back to that um, different protocols ranging from, Every month you do a five to seven day fast or a two to three day fast. I know, I know Peter Atia talks a lot about his kind of fasting protocols and is like, he gets real <laughs> into the weeds in terms of, oh, quarterly, I do a seven day fast. Yeah. And then, you know, so, you know, you don't have to get that specific, but um, just intermittently undergoing these 24 to 48 hour plus periods of fasting. I think that's what I would categorize as, as intermittent fasting. And then to differentiate that from like something like time restricted feeding, where that's just having an eating window every day and then not eating, you know, within a certain period of time, I guess there's only two things you can do, eat or not eat, but you know, time restricted feeding, typically you separate that into the different either 16 and eight, 18 and six, 20 and four, you know, several iterations of that. Um, so kind of the three different buckets of IF, I guess is, is what um, I was just describing. Mm -hmm. And do you think like, the majority of any potential benefits are going to be at the individual level as to how you structure that in a sense that, you know, when I think about this, like if I were to commit to say like a 24 for the rest of my life where I was fasting 20 hours eating in a four hour window, 
if I started thinking about that, like, yeah, but there's going to be, you know, it might be hard to stick to. And depending on how like, you look rigid you want to be, you know, some people would be like, well, I'll just do 24, 29 out of the 30 days. And if I fall off the wagon one day, I'm just going to put that in the rear view mirror and move forward. And they probably have a really good relationship with it versus the person who's going to beat themselves up over having a failure in there. Do you think like that type of context is what's going to make say like a alternate day type of a setup a little more sustainable for people in the sense that they can, they can hunker down and do that time restricted window for that one day or that complete 24 hour asset one day when they know the next day they can kind of go, go back to maybe what they traditionally were used to. Yeah. And I think that's the reason I think they, each of these kind of, each of these forms of intermittent fasting have their different, um, the a different ability to sort of be adhered to. And so that's where I think TRF, that's why it's so popular. And so, I mean, it's, it's, if we think about it, really, it's practiced by everybody. Everybody does some sort of time restricted feeding because everybody sleeps. You're sleeping, you know, even if you're sleeping for six hours a day, you know, you're doing a six hour fast every day. So, you know, some people will maybe sleep less than that, but in general, like if you get the recommended amount of sleep, you're at least going eight hours every day without eating. Typically though, when you talk about TRF, it's something more than that. It's typically 12 hours or more. I don't think many people would consider anything less than 12, like, um, in, or uh, time-restricted feeding. So I think that the adherence to TRF and the popularity of it is because, as you mentioned, it's something that people can see themselves, not that, you know, something that they already do, but something that they can see themselves sticking to, you know, almost forever. You know, it's, okay, so I'm going to set my clock when I stop eating dinner the next day, once eight hours or whatever elapses, if you're doing a 16-8, then I can eat and I just do that every single day. And you may fall off the wagon, like you said, um, a couple times during the week, or you may just sort of be a little over or a little below sort of that number on any given day. But in general, it's like, yes, I can see myself adhering to this. And especially after a while when, you know, I think at least personally, but others, you know, will say, once you adapt to it, you know, you, your body gets (laughs) trained to sort of these rhythms. You know, if you wake up every day and eat breakfast, well, yeah, you're going to wake up and be hungry every day. If you start to implement these routines and don't get hungry till lunch, that's probably going to be sort of the way that your body operates. Um, from then on. So I think you can adapt to those and that they're very sustainable over the long term. And then in terms of the benefits, I think that again, you'll be able to see those benefits because you can consistently practice it. And you know what those benefits are. Um, there are, you know, several and maybe some that are overstated more than others, but you know, I think the data can show that cardiovascular benefits have maybe weight loss benefits. Again, I think that all comes down to does TRF lead to overall reduced sort of energy intake, you know, might be a controversial statement. I'm talking about calories in calories out now. People don't like that, but (laughs) you know, if you, if you're able to reduce your calories in a way that, you know, TRF allows that to happen, then that can potentially lead to weight loss and then weight loss maintenance over the long term. Um, But then aside from weight loss, just the, the, um, the metabolic benefits of having that daily fasting window of 12 to 13 hours, potentially allowing you to dip a little bit into ketosis. I'm not quite sure, you know, if 12 hours is sufficient, you may need something like 20 or above to reach what would clinically maybe be defined as ketosis. Um, But then also just, you know, obviously allowing you to kind of be in a fat burning state, at least for some portion of the day, which I think has the benefits. Now, if we talk about ADF or alternate day fasting, that's sort of talked about less. And maybe I'll combine that with the intermittent fasting. I think the benefits, I think people could practice both because they maybe have these different benefits. I think when people talk about intermittent fasting, say we'll take, for example, doing maybe a monthly uh, 
two to five day fast. So you're kind of doing a really, really longer fast, uh, you know, once a month or something, maybe every couple months. I think that the theoretical maybe and the sort of um, published evidence for that, you know, there's not much published evidence in humans, but the reason many people do those is sort of due to the potential effects on longevity, because during those really extended fasts, they're long enough to activate autophagy. So we talk about like autophagy, it's this word that's thrown around a lot, um, sometimes misused by people, but, um, you know, in, in lay terms and perhaps, you know, to, to simplify it too much, it's kind of referred to as like this cellular recycling program, you know, you, when your body is sort of running low on energy, these certain genetic programs are activated. Basically your cells will um, clear out senescent cells or cells that no longer are replicating and then sort of use those quote unquote recycled parts to either create new cells. Um, so it's sort of just like this cellular cleansing process that occurs and that's activated. I would say probably you need two, three days of fasting or more to actually do that. So I think people who are, you know, very, very, in this area, like Peter Atia and others would, and, you know, Stephen Anton as well, would say that you need the ex extended periods to activate autophagy. And then that potentially has an effect on longevity, whether that's health span or lifespan, because if those senescent cells are contributing to aging, like some people propose, then your, you know, your quarterly or your monthly period where you're allowing autophagy to happen um, should be positively contributing to longevity. Now there are other things that increase autophagy like exercising. Um, but just in terms of a fasting, many people just find that to be sort of like a reset. And I hate that word. I don't like when people use like a reset because I don't really think that it has any physiological meaning. Um, but I think that doing those extended periods where you're not eating, most people are, have, you know, not gone 24 hours or more without eating for their entire life. So just either allowing digestion to kind of calm down or, you know, not a I mean, it's occurring, but, you know, digestion to sort of rest for a couple of days. Um, I think it just serves as this psychological, physiological reset for many people. So I think that's where kind of the benefits from intermittent fasting come in. There are certainly metabolic benefits, but if you're only doing it maybe once or twice, maybe three times a year, if you're doing a real extended fast, I don't think, you know, that's not going to have a significant effect on your body fat or your weight. Cause once you resume feeding after that really extended fast, you'll probably just pop right back up to normal. Um, I know that fasting researchers like, um, Walter Longo, he, they kind of show that like your organs shrink if you're doing fasting for 24 to 48 hours. Now, caveat is that all these studies have kind of been in mice and rodents, other animal models. So not a lot of studies in humans, but the organs shrink. And then when you refeed, they sort of go back to normal size. Um, but that process may be beneficial in terms of, you know, just protecting the health of these organs, potentially mitigating some of the effects of, of aging. And I definitely think there's some validity to that, but, you know, so again, you know, you could do all of these combined, you don't have to just say practice IF or TRF, you know, one could do TRF all the time and then perhaps do, um, you know, a monthly longer fast and sort of gain the benefits of, of all of those, whether it's the psychological benefits um, or, the, or the metabolic benefits. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. 
I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think. Yeah, I kind of like the idea of like picking a few that you can wrap your head around and like rotating through them in the kind of the same way. I like a variety of different, or I like a periodized training schedule because mm-hmm. it's like, exactly. I don't, I don't get sick of short intervals if I'm only doing them <laughs> twice a week. And I don't get sick of a long run if I do it once a week. But if I were to try to do those every day, not only it probably wouldn't pan out for me physically, but like just psychologically, just like all oh, this again, you know, is kind mm-hmm. of a, a, a human thing, I guess that tends to kind of creep up on us. So yeah, that's say, a great analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I always go back to the running workout analogy. <laughs> sure. Um, one other question about autoph- autophagy is given up, given enough time in a calorie deficit, are you going to see kind of the same benefits from autophagy versus say, perhaps a accelerated benefit from just withstanding or withdrawing like any eating, or is this going to be another scenario of you're going to make bigger benefits in this area, but maybe not so much this one when you do one or the other? Yeah. So I think for that, you know, I, again, you know, I'm not an autophagy researcher, but in terms of, you know, why, when autophagy is activated, generally you need, an inhibition or a downregulation of something called mTOR. So mTOR is sort of this major growth pathway in the body. When mTOR is stimulated, it promotes protein synthesis. And when it's inhibited, it sort of allows these autophagy, um, autophagic processes, maybe I might be creating a word there, but those processes to occur. And so clearly, you know, what activates mTOR and nutrients, particularly amino acids. And so if you, like you mentioned, if you get in, a caloric deficit that is sufficient enough, or I guess any energetic deficit technically is going to activate these pathways that will eventually lead to, um, I guess, mTOR inhibition and the activation of autophagy. And so I, I would assume, um, I'm not 100% sure, but I would assume that that would be graded with the intensity of nutrient deprivation. So complete nutrient deprivation, say via fasting or something like that, would allow greater you know, inhibition of mTOR and, you know, just slight nutrient deprivation would allow, you know, a, a inhibition of it, but maybe to a lesser extent. And I think that's, again, why, why exercise is such a potent inhibitor of autophagy. So, hey, you don't want to fast. Okay, well, just exercise maybe even after an overnight fast and you'll activate autophagy because what are you doing during exercise? You're, you're burning energy. So you're going to be in an energetic deficit, you know, assuming you didn't consume anything during or before that exercise, you're going to be in an energetic deficit after that. And so autophagy in some way is going to be um, upregulated. Now mTOR isn't the only thing controlling it, but again, it's sort of the major, um, major controller of some of these pathways that control autophagy. Um, but yeah, so that's why exercise and fasting both do it because they lead to a caloric deficit. So I guess it's choosing maybe how you want to achieve your caloric deficit if you want to try to enter into autophagy. But again, I think, I think we need to, maybe I need to mention that like a lot of work in this autophagy space 
hasn't one been done in humans. There's not really a way to validate autophagy in humans. There's not sort of this biomarker that we can measure to say, yes, you're an autophagy or no, you're not. And so a lot of it is based off of animal work or just assumed. And so that's kind of where I have issues with say, I don't know if you are familiar with like the zero fasting app. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, so when you're using that, if you get to, I'm not sure what the time is or whatever, but you get to like a certain time period and it's like, oh, you're in autophagy. It's like, well, <laughs> you don't really know that. You're kind of just, I mean, it's a very science-based app and I'm not going to discredit that. They have a scientific advisory board for that company that is, you know, stellar, including guys like Peter Atia, uh, even like Rhonda Patrick maybe is on there. But so again, I'm not discrediting the app at all, but again, it's a lot of this is theoretical in terms of to say you're in autophagy after a 24 hour fast uh, or not, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this the the topic of exercise induced autophagy is a perfect segue in kind of my next uh, question, or I guess probably wonderment. I would imagine at this point is <laughs> uh, when I first kind of started getting interested in hearing more topics around fasting, intermittent fasting, time restricted feeding. My first thought was, okay, for someone like myself who in peak training for sure it's oftentimes a bigger question of like, okay, how do I get in enough energy, especially when I'm already at waist rate versus what I think a lot of folks are maybe focusing on, which is like maintaining a weight or losing weight in which case for them, like the longer they can kind of promote a fast, the more progress they're potentially making towards that goal. Whereas for me, it's like, if I go out and do say a 30 mile long run and wait to the end of the day to eat, it's like, okay, (laughs) here we go. Now I'm going to be like, I'm going to look pregnant essentially at the end of this meal. And <laughs> yeah. You're just digging a ditch at that point right. that you might not be able to dig yourself out of. <laughs> yeah. So, so my question with that is, uh, you know, with fasting, we're always or oftentimes looking at this as a time spent type of a part of the equation. And I'm also interested in just like the energy output side of that, where the way to maybe explain this so folks can kind of wrap their heads around it quite easily is if I just don't do anything for a day, like I'm taking a rest day, I'm probably going to burn somewhere in the neighborhood of 2000 calories. So if I decide to do one meal that day or do a 24 hour fast, uh, you know, over that 24 hours of zero calories, uh, I can make up for that with a 2000 calorie meal at the end of the day. And I have this like kind of like documented 24 hour window of no feeding for any of those effects that take place that we've talked about or spoken about. Now let's introduce a scenario where instead of that rest day, I do like a 10 mile run in the morning, but implement the same fasting protocol of that one meal with a 24 hour break between that and the previous one. So now my equation is more like a 3000 calorie energy output. Does that behave in my body more like a 36 hour fast would if I were to say remain sedentary versus introducing that 10 mile run? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question to think about. I would say, you know, again, like you kind of, I'm just maybe musing here, but mm-hmm. I would anticipate that, you know, cause, cause basically what you're saying is that from, from a calories, a net calorie perspective, net energy perspective, maybe we use instead of calories, but net energy perspective, you're kind of balanced in both of them. One was just, you introduced exercise and maybe ate more and the other, you didn't exercise and sort of ate less. I feel that in terms of the, like the metabolic benefits or kind of the adaptations that are going to occur, they, I would feel that they would be unique in terms of, you know, maybe if we're talking about autophagy, you're going to be maybe activating it to the same extent, just from the energy standpoint, but with the 10 mile run, it also, you know, there's a lot that you can play with there too. It's like, well, 
you said, you know, you mentioned that the 10 mile run would be in the morning and then kind of the rest of the day you're compensating for that versus maybe fasting all day and then doing the 10 mile run. You know, I think that could potentially have an effect. Um, so I think, I think from an energetic perspective and activating, you know, from energetic and then weight perspective, um, and then maybe autophagy, maybe the same, but I think in terms of, well, and maybe not even in terms of autophagy, because in the earlier uh, scenario where you didn't exercise, you were fasting for 24 hours. So I think that that's going to have some, some unique, unique benefits there that are independent of energy intake, because I guess, you know, what this is coming down to, I think that the effects of fasting are not just dependent upon energy intake. I don't think that a caloric deficit and fasting are mutually exclusive. So you can, you know, you can do timer restricted feeding every day or even alternate day fasting. And, you know, when all is said and done, be in a net caloric balance or even a, you know, a caloric excess. I mean, you could, you know, fast all day and then eat 3,500 calories at the end of the day, you'll be in a caloric surplus. But I don't necessarily think that that maybe if this is or isn't answer your question, but I don't think that negates the benefits of the prior fast. So I think that if you were to say, take, for example, there are some even studies showing this, if you were to say fast for 20 hours and then consume your 3000 calories in the four hour window after that in your 24 hour day, or eat 3000 calories, 1000 calories at breakfast, 1000 at lunch, 1000 at dinner, I think that you'd be better off with the former scenario where you fasted all day because you get those unique benefits of fasting that are independent of caloric intake. And I think you separate those from weight because in any case, you may weigh the same, maybe a little less with the fasting, but overall your energy intake is the same. So you're going to you know, remain at the same weight, but the metabolic benefits you get from that fasting are going to be the same. But then when you introduce exercise, like you mentioned, I think that um, I think that doing, doing the exercise again, when you're doing it in a fasted state, but you're going to put yourself in an energy deficit versus, and you know, this is just going to also depend on like the profile of when you're fasting, you know, if you don't exercise that day, are you ever really in an energetic deficit or you're just kind of at your basal metabolic rate and it's, you know, you're maybe kind of maintaining that. So I think with the exercise, I would consider that situation to maybe more beneficial from an adaptation perspective because you're exercising, you're putting that yourself in the caloric deficit, you're, you know, causing all these changes within the muscle and then you're, you know, refeeding yourself afterwards. Um, if I didn't answer your question, we can maybe <laughs> talk about this more. <laughs> no, that's, that's totally, totally good. I think uh, it's, it's an interesting one because I think it's like, you know, you're kind of with certainly the type of exercise I'm doing, putting the fast forward button on your metabolism and and it's like, how does that kind of square with time and all that, all the, all the other variables that are included in these sort of equations. So it's, it was a, it, it, it kind of runs parallel with just the same thought of uh, what I initially kind of avoided any sort of time restricted feeding type strategies uh, because I was, and we can talk about this in a little bit, uh, just from a performance standpoint, thinking like, well, if I'm doing this often enough, how is that going to either negatively, neutrally or positively impact performance and that sort of stuff. So it kind of got me thinking about if I were to start doing any sort of structured fasting during my training, do I want to be looking at from an energy output standpoint versus a time standpoint? And then, uh, I mean, ultimately what I'm trying to do is a 72 hour fast, but only do it in 24 hours. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, completely, it just, 
it's it's interesting because you I think it needs to be separated from energy needs to be separated from um just the you know whatever's happening at like the genetic level in terms of like gene transcription and protein synthesis and things like that and so yeah you could if you're just thinking about metabolically simulate the 72 hour fast by going on a 30 mile run you know whatever yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like you've been fasting for 72 hours but i don't think that if we sort of did a whole transcriptome analysis that everything would be like similar sure. in that regard mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, and kind of moving on to the performance side, I was listening to a podcast uh, by Dr. Mike Nelson, who's been on this podcast a couple of times, and he's got a podcast called the Flex Diet Podcast. Uh, he had a guy, uh, Jeff Rothschild, who's a dietitian out of New Zealand, come in and talk about kind of fasted versus fed cardio. And they did a, he did a study in his lab that was really interesting to me because they took basically three arms where they did a morning a training session or multiple training sessions actually. And they had three groups. One was completely fasted, no calories at all. Then they had an arm that was fed, but with fat and protein. So essentially like a ketogenic arm. And then mm -hmm. they had their mod high carb arm where it was, you know, they had carbs and protein. And I believe the meals or the breakfast, what they call them were around the neighborhood of 300 calories or something like that. And what they noticed with that is when the workouts were kept to, I think it was like 60, maybe up to 90 minutes, there was no real like significant performance advantage or disadvantage from any of those three. And they actually included uh, a day where they did short intervals. So that's the one that kind of surprised me. I was thinking like the short intervals would maybe have a little bit more of an impact at least from a perceived effort standpoint from the, the fed versus unfed, or perhaps even the mod high carb versus the keto fasted group, but it didn't seem to bear out in that. Um, is that something you've looked into at all? Have you heard of that study and have any comments on it or anything like that? Yeah, I think I'm sure I read that study just in terms of like, you know, scanning the literature for anything related to fasted exercise. Um, Cause I have done a few, posts that I've written on that. But I think that, you know, it definitely is interesting that you didn't really see an effect either way, regardless of what they ate, or even if they didn't eat, you set up to like 90 minutes, um, even introducing some sort of high intensity work in there. And I definitely think that that it kind of makes sense. I mean, from a personal perspective, and maybe you can attest to but I don't necessarily find and, you know, I guess something to mention for a study like that, it would be interesting to see sort of the individual changes, you know, what I'll have to look up that study and kind of see what happened because, you know, with all research, say you have 12, 15 people, some might improve, some might, you know, have a tank. Um, so what's kind of how were the individual responses? So yes, on average, there was, there was no change. Um, and again, no statistically significant change, you know, when it comes to athletes in terms of performance, maybe what would not be statistically significant would be what we would call say clinically significant. So sure. Five seconds isn't significant <laughs> statistically, but if I can, right. you know, run faster by five seconds, well, hell yeah, I want to. And if that means I had a Gatorade before my workout, then I'll have the Gatorade. Mm -hmm. um, but it definitely is interesting that sort of, there was no limitation to the fasting. Um, I think that again, when, when most people will, this is, you know, something often thrown around a lot. It's like, oh, well, there's no, even if there was no detriment to fasting there, well, there wasn't, there's never a benefit. I think that's something to, at least performance wise, we're speaking in that context. So fasted exercise is never going to quote unquote outperform 
a Fed exercise bout in terms of whatever performance outcome we're measuring. Um, it's just not going to happen. Um, but I do think it's interesting to say if there are no benefits, similar to like when we were talking about ketogenic diets, okay, well, they may not improve performance over high carb, but do they decrease it? No. So if they don't decrease it, then I think there is a case to be made because there are some benefits to be gained from a low carb bout of exercise or a fasted bout of exercise um, that are distinct from those if you exercised when you were fed. So if they produce the same performance, I think that the case could be made to train in the fasted state to optimize some of those benefits related to like fat burning or mitochondrial um, expression of mitochondrial genes for mitochondrial biogenesis, whatever it may be. Um, but then I also think that there's something to talk about in this aspect regarding um, some people have brought up the fact that I think strategic use of that fasted exercise, um, there needs to be um, an argument or maybe a case to be made for that because consistently say you train every single day fasted. I think that there may be some markers that studies aren't measuring or maybe that can't be measured in terms of maybe um, neurological or endocrine effects that say if you're training fasted every day and you're really in the heat of competition or through a really hard training bout, um, you don't want to sort of put yourself into the, that caloric deficit all the time, or you don't really want to put this stress on your system all the time. So there are some days where you may want to supplement with carbs during your workout or eat breakfast before you run. Um, but again, that's context specific. If you're an athlete looking to peak at a certain time or peak for a certain race, then yes, you probably need to implement some of those. But if you're just exercising on a day-to-day -day basis, you're not really concerned with a five to 10 second, you know, margin here or there, and you feel more comfortable exercising fasted, um, I think that the benefits there would stand to reason that you could just do that every day, probably without any adverse consequences. Because most mm -hmm. people are just not really, um, the, the trade-off in terms of a 10 to 15 second boost, even for me now, it's like, you know, I'm racing and whatever, I want to run as fast as I can or cycle as fast as I can. But to me, the discomfort and maybe the inconvenience of eating before my morning workout would far outweigh the perhaps maybe minor cognitive or minor, minor physical boost that I might get from say like having a banana or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And it actually kind of intersects with the previous question about just like the energy equation versus the time equation uh, in the sense that one of my original like skepticisms or curiosities around any sort of fasting time restricted feeding type of procedure that is more regimented in terms of like say OMAD one meal a day on a consistent basis with the interjection of a fairly heavy workload is just like if it happened to be that the signal I'm sending my body is more like 48 hours without food if I'm sending that signal day in and every day, the stressor relative to what it would be like to kind of always be on a 48 hour fast, mm -hmm. probably not ideal long-term, maybe ideal like sporadically spread out through the year. It might be more in that kind of Peter Atia window where there's a reason he does a seven day fast once a quarter versus, you know, every two weeks and stuff like that. Even for like a cyclic ketogenic diet, people will say the same thing. You know, I ketosis, I think is, you know, a beneficial state to be in, but perhaps not beneficial to be in all the time. I don't think we have enough data maybe to conclude either way, but it's like, this was a state that humans and animals um, entered when food was scarce. It's almost a protective mechanism. You know, it's not, 
I, ideal, I hate to use the word ideal, but it's like, you know, this was a, a state that we're going to be in when there's a lack of food. It's a stress, a state of quote unquote stress in some ways. So there could be an argument that you don't want to be in ketosis all of the time. You want to be in it cyclically, maybe for a small period out of each day or perhaps a couple days uh, per week. But chronically, you know, what are the effects of that? Maybe not necessarily metabolically, maybe those are fine, but you know, what about neurologically, endocrine related? There's so many just factors to consider, but um, anything, you know, the dose of anything makes the poison as, you know, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it also just kind of comes down to acute versus like long-term chronic stress where, you know, acute stressors on your body is essentially what we're doing with training to make improvements. But if I would uh, acutely stress myself or chronically stress myself with the same type of workout that yielded results in the proper formulation, you know, I'm going to find that margin of diminishing returns and start regressing. So it kind of feeds into that kind of same understanding as far as I can tell. Yeah. And I also just think it's like important to talk about the stacking of sort of all of these different interventions on on one another. You know, we, and I speak of we and people who are like you and me who are interested in all of these different things, whether it be exercising, fasting, sauna, ice baths, whatever it may be, you know, there are so many levers to pull to enhance health, but there needs to be um, a balance that is struck between all of these different interventions in terms of yeah, okay, fasting is good. Exercise is good. Exercise plus fasting, probably good. But you can have too much exercise and too much fasting. And if you pair those together too, you can have too much of both of those. I mean, there's there's a stress threshold for everybody. And you know, if you cross that, you're going to probably get more negative adaptations than positive ones. I think that you know, one study that comes to mind, I don't know the authors of the title of the study, but I remember reading it. They, they did a study where they were doing exercise training and then they uh, combined exercise training with like post-exercise sauna immersion. So they sat in the sauna for 20, 30 minutes after exercise. And they actually, I think by the end of that study showed that the adaptations to the exercise were diminished when they did the sauna bathing. And it might've even, be great, might've even been graded with sort of the, the length of the sauna use. So it's like, yeah, well, sauna can help to maybe optimize some adaptations. But if you're going on a two hour run and sitting in the sauna for an hour, that's a lot of stress on your body. You know, there's a case to be made that for not doing that, you know, maybe do a 10 to 15 minute sauna session. Um, but stacking too many of these, what are initially beneficial interventions on one another can um, not necessarily be good. I think if it's, if they're carried over, but people tend to love, you know, myself included, I include myself in that, but they just tend to love to take everything to the extreme, um, you know, it's fun and it's interesting and it's, and it's all a process of experimentation of what your body can handle. But, um, you know, it's, it's not just simply a case of this good more equals better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'll add too, if that two hour run is in the summer in Phoenix, you, you probably can withstand <laughs> withhold from the sauna treatment afterwards. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're getting both at the same time at that point. <laughs> I, I like to, I like to get maximum benefit with a uh, minimum input with that. Fasted <laughs> <laughs> um, run in the, in the Phoenix summer. It's yeah. uh, equivalent to all of these interventions <laughs> combined. <laughs> um, what, one other question about just the way someone would perhaps structure a fast and whether this would negatively impact it or positively, or maybe it just depends on the situation is like exogenous ketones. Um, my understanding is the introduction of exogenous ketones should be kind of categorized the same way as it would almost like a fourth macronutrient uh, to the degree that you're no longer in a completely unfed state. 
is there any reason or maybe i'm wrong about that at a you know for all intents and purposes but is there do you see any value in exogenous ketones for folks trying to do fasting yeah, I do. And so exogenous ketones, there's such a cool like area. And this is an area that I've been getting into as well, just because I did a little, a little bit of writing for um, HVMN, sort of the first company to introduce the exogenous ketone ester, like commercially available at least. Um, and that just got me like interested in this very, very emerging, very recent area. Um, and it's a very unique kind of state of physiology because like what the ketones allow us to do is enter ketosis, but while we're in a fed state. And I've kind of had, I've kind of had, um, you know, competing thoughts about this, like, oh, is that good? Or is it bad? Because ketones are traditionally upregulated when our body is, you know, in, in a fasted state, in a nutrient deprived state. And so is it good to, oh, we can have high levels of blood glucose or normal, maybe levels of blood glucose, but also like circulating ketones. I don't necessarily know if that's good. I don't know if we even have that data yet of whether that's good in terms of, you know, health or what the long-term implications of that are. Um, in terms of whether ketones um, can have a benefit, I think, I think that there are several different buckets that they can be placed into. And we'll talk since I'll answer your question first, but regarding fasting, I think that they, there's a case to be made that they could, they could help. And I think the main way that they're going to help during a fast is to increase adherence to that fast or make that fast more, um, you're more tolerable. Almost, yeah. yeah, sustainable. Exactly. Yes. So, you know, for instance, it basically just expedites your entry into ketosis. So, you know, if you're starting off on a seven day fast or whatever, we'll use the extreme, maybe example, maybe we'll do five day fast. Um, so you start off on that, you know, you're not going to, depending on your status before going in there, I know, again, keep referencing Peter Atia, but he has interesting protocols surrounding this. He'll typically do a, a keto diet leading into his fast, which apparently, um, you know, eases his way kind of into that fast. But, you know, regardless of your metabolic state going into there, it'll maybe take 24, 48 hours for you to enter kind of ketosis, which would be maybe 0.5 millimolar of blood BHB. Um, so by using the ketones, say if you start your fast and ingest an exogenous ketone, you know, at the very start, and then sort of maybe ingest half a serving kind of continuously for every three hours, that could up your ketone levels immediately. You sort of kind of get this, maybe use a mega dose to like get there and then sort of this maintenance dose to carry you through the fast. Um, again, I think that would allow one to, um, to perform the fast easier. And so if, you know, your goal is to just complete a five day fast. And if your goal of the fast is to kind of abstain from calories or just reduce overall calories, put yourself in an energetic deficit, then yes, they can be very, you know, effective at that. Now ketones do contain calories, but again, even if you're taking like two servings of a ketone per day during your fasting, um, you know, that's maybe five, 600 calories per day. So it's not a lot, you're going to be in an energetic deficit. And so if it allows you to sort of maintain that fasting regimen and, and reach that goal, then it's good. You know, if, if the goal of the fast is to completely not eat anything or not introduce any sort of energetic, uh, substance into your body, then there can maybe a case to be made to not use them. But even then it's like, there are minimal calories in the ketones. So it's almost like the fasting mimicking diet type of thing that Longo is sort of um, promoting now, or he has that business where basically, yeah, you're not really fasting, but you're having like a protein bar at lunch. And so you're essentially 
fasting because um, there are just different goals maybe of a fast. If you're trying to just get into autophagy, whatever, then yeah, using the ketones can allow you to, to do that. But I also think that many people fast for just like the cognitive benefits or again, like that gut reset, I use the word again, but you know, that gut reset. And so in that case, yeah, you're not eating anything during that fast. You're taking in the ketones, sure, as an energetic substrate, but if that allows you to sort of maintain your cognitive performance, not feel so sluggish throughout that fast and complete that fast, um, then I think they can be a very useful tool um, to do that because they also, um, one of the sort of well, maybe not well, but sort of the studied mechanisms that ketones can also act um, act through is to reduce appetite. So they reduce uh, ghrelin. I know Dr. Brianna Stubbs and colleagues have done some studies showing that supplementing with exogenous ketones reduces appetite hormones and the desire to eat. And so, you know, if, if one of the things that's present, preventing somebody from completing a fast is hunger, you know, you just can't withstand the hunger anymore. Ketones could also be a tool to sort of hit that, um, that barrier to completing the fast. So I definitely think that they're a tool um, in which could be used um, in somebody who wanted to do maybe a couple extended fasts or something like that, for sure. Awesome. No, that was a great description. And all this has been just a lot of fun to kind of chat about Brady. Uh, I want to be mindful of your time. So uh, I think we, we've covered all the questions I had in regards to the fasting stuff and, you know, touched on a few bonus stuff in the beginning, which is always good. Uh, but I want to give you an opportunity to kind of say anything you want to say, if there's anything extra you want to touch on, or just kind of share where folks can find you if they're interested in checking out what you're up to the research you're doing and generally follow you on social media. Yeah, sure thing. Um, you know, I think we, we kind of touched upon everything that, you know, I think is, I think is relevant. I had a lot of fun talking about, you know, fasting and keto diets and, and all that areas I'm, I'm very interested in. So, you know, obviously just one, maybe final interesting thing to talk about. I, I'm clearly interested in the performance side of these uh, ketogenic diets and exogenous ketones, but there's some very interesting kind of data coming out about ketones, uh, whether it be ketogenic diet um, or through exogenous ketones and sort of cardiovascular health. And so there was kind of a recently published paper talking about the application of, I think it was maybe exogenous ketones, but it could have been ketogenic diets as well for, um, for cardiovascular health. You know, there have been studies showing supplementing with exogenous ketones can improve uh, blood vessel function. And then there's sort of a case to be made. It was in this paper that was recently published, but um, you know, the heart as well as the brain and other tissues can use ketones as a fuel. And so, you know, many times um, situations such as like heart failure um, or other diseases of the heart are categorized in some part by inability of the heart to produce adequate, you know, ATP, whether it be through kind of this insulin resistance, um, you know, the heart can also use fatty acids as a fuel, but um, maybe just some sort of some sort of resistance or inability to produce sufficient energy, um, but apparently readily using ketones. And so I think that there is kind of some future research that will start to be um, being conducted on exogenous ketone supplementation, not just from a performance standpoint, there's a lot of research going on there. Um, and I have a couple, a couple articles on that on my blog, which I can um, reference in a few minutes. But the the aspect of using ketones as from like a clinical perspective is something that really interests me because, you know, there are you know, there's an epidemic of metabolic disease in, in the country, which could be solved, you know, through dietary, whether it's low carb diet or whatever fasting, those are also tools, but, you know, exogenous ketones, I think, you know, there's a lot of data on Alzheimer's disease, you know, and then whether this can apply also to like 
the heart? Can we use ketones in heart failure or other vascular diseases? You know, clearly that's an area where I'm researching. So I find that that all very interesting. Um, and then, you know, who knows, I'm just you know, spouting off interesting ideas here, but I've thought about, you know, could ketones be protective against some of the effects of say sleep deprivation? You know, that's the area where I'm researching, but um, I just think that, you know, continuing our ketone conversation, there's a lot of applications for these supplements and there's such a unique um, introduction as a supplement that there's so much more research to be done, but a particular area that I'm interested in and I would highly suggest people sort of maybe do some research on, or maybe take a look at a couple of my articles that I've written um, is the exogenous ketones in the, in the cardiovascular space. It's an area that I find that I find very interesting. Um, but in terms of where people can find me, so I actually have a website. It's just bradyholmer.com. Um, I was able to, to get that domain. Apparently there aren't many Brady Holmers out there, luckily. Uh, so and on there, I, I honestly have links to anything, you know, I have links to, I have a page where you can find my podcast links to it on Apple podcasts, Spotify, wherever, um, the name of my podcast is science and chill. So people can search for that, but, um, that can be found on my website. I also have my blog there. So I just blog about various topics, including the aforementioned, you know, ketones and cardiovascular disease as opposed to I have on there. But, um, you know, I'll just write on various things I'm interested in, you know, I focus on vascular health, cardiovascular health and things like that, but performance, nutrition, kind of no topic is, is off limits there. Um, and then just other things on my website, you can find scientific publications that I'm either first author on or co-author on. Um, so yeah, that's sort of a all, all inclusive place where you can find me. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's just B underscore Homer, H-O-L-M-E-R. I'm fairly active on there. Um, you and I interact pretty frequently, almost daily. It's always, it's always a lot of fun, but I'm very active on there and will, you know, definitely, definitely interact if people want to follow, um, comment on this episode or critique anything that we said today. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Brady. Well, thanks a bunch for taking some time. I'm looking forward to getting this one up and, uh, perhaps down the road, we can dive into another topic or as you uncover some stuff with your, your, uh, your career and research with these topics, uh, feel free to reach out and let me know if you want to want to chat about anything that you come up with. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully, hopefully in the next year or so, you know, we'll have some awesome data to share and we can maybe do a round two and, and talk about all that. Cause I know we didn't get to some of the, some of the stuff that I'm doing today, but yeah, I'm always, always down to talk and I'll come on anytime. <laughs> awesome, Brady. Take care. Have a great rest of the day. Yeah. Thanks Zach. You too. Hey folks, I want to make a quick shout out to some of my personal athlete sponsors and offer all of you some discount options if you think my gear is also right for you. My shoe of choice, Ultra Footwear, is offering listeners 15% off. They make a foot-shaped, balanced, cushioned shoe that fits like a glove. S-Fuels is offering 5% off and they are my go-to low-carb workout and lifestyle product of choice. Eggweights is offering 15% off their running form, strength work, and recovery products. Finally, Purpose Performance Wear is offering 10% off my favorite workout apparel, including my own signature series. So head over to zachbitter.com forward slash my gear or the profile link on my social media channels to check out these discounts and more. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 